This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. We've been having some beautiful weather the past few weeks. I hope everyone is enjoying the summertime and all of the fun that comes with it. I think we've got a great show for you today. We've got Anna Fialkoff from Wild Sea Project visiting us again. Anna, who is Ecological Programs Manager at Wild Seed, has authored a guide with founder Heather McCargo called Native Ground Covers for Northeast Landscapes. I think you'll find this information very interesting, especially when it comes to what to grow in those hot and dry places in the garden. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Anna to the show. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Yeah, this is great. Now, you've got this wonderful new guide called Native Ground Covers for Northeast Landscapes. Could you talk about the genesis of that? What led you and Wild Seed Project to put out a guide like that? For sure. Well, we've put out an annual publication every year that our members actually receive as part of their membership, which is lovely. And then people are able to buy them on the website. And in the past, we had done six full volumes of Wild Seed magazines, which were lovely. They were written in partnership with a number of different folks from the ecological landscape community and horticulturists, conservationists, and biologists with lots of beautiful artwork. And we wanted to continue an annual publication, but we also wanted to kind of shift gears and think about something that would be more perennial, just in terms of, you know, something that people would find useful year after year, even though, of course, the magazines have tons of great information in them. They're thought of as kind of a dated publication. So we came up with this idea of creating a series of guides and one would come out each year. If we have the bandwidth, maybe we'll put out more than one a year, but for now it's one a year. And the first guide was native trees for Northeast landscapes. It felt really important to cover the really big players in the landscape, the trees that have the greatest amount of biomass in their trunks and branches and leaves and stems and roots and and into the soil. And then we were thinking about all the different layers in the landscape and we really tried to emphasize and system kind of encouraging people to think more holistically about our landscapes, not just plopping a tree in the middle of a lawn or not just having a straight herbaceous ground cover or a meadow, but having multi-layered landscapes that can really fill in all the different niches in the landscape and provide much, much more habitat support for cover and forage and 
allowing, you know, birds to be at different layers in the landscape, et cetera. So it felt natural to come up with the next guide as a ground cover guide covering the very top of the canopy and then going down to the floor and thinking about the ground covers as the foundations for really rewilding our landscapes from the ground up, encouraging people to reduce their lawns and not think of lawn as the default landscape because it is so resource intensive and sucks huge amounts of water. It's, you know, one of the most irrigated crops in the U.S., and requires often lots of fertilizers to stay nice and green, pesticides and herbicides. And so we just think, you know, a perfect alternative is ground covers that can be layered under taller plants in that kind of forest system. And thinking also about replacing those mulch deserts, which take up huge portions of our commercial and home landscapes. You can plop in a few plants and then put vast expanses of mulch in between them, but that's also not going to kind of even if they're native plants you're putting in, that's not going to serve the landscape as much as really covering all the ground and reducing the erosion on the ground layer, as well as retaining moisture, providing a really protective surface so that weeds have a hard time coming up through those places and really starting from the ground up. So that's what led us to the, the ground cover guide. That is great. Now, the book starts with a plea for rewilding. With a big emphasis on reaching out to community, neighbors and friends, could you talk about that for just a moment? Sure. If you're unfamiliar with our program called the Pledge to Rewild, we started rewilding as a concept throughout the whole course of Wild Seed Project's history. Heather McCargo had been using that phrase for a while. She learned it from some of the rewilding movements in different parts of Europe and the Western U.S., where you're looking at kind of a top-down approach a lot of the time with other rewilding movements to conservation, thinking about the keystone predators and species that really help keep the whole ecosystem in balance. So, for instance, looking at the wolf that after it was hunted out of the Western United States, reintroducing it really led to this cascade of benefits for the whole ecosystem because the wolves were able to keep the populations of deer and elk and other herbivores in check. And once they reduced their herbivory on the landscape, the vegetation was allowed to grow back and then waters were able to run more clean. They were filtered out, temperatures cooled and evened out, and then just all sorts of other wildlife were able to thrive in Yellowstone National Park. So those types of rewilding movements have been employed in other parts of the world as well. And it's pretty big in Europe. But from our perspective, really thinking about the native plants as the keystone species, as the keystone organisms that support the foundation of our local food webs, and looking at not just those large tracts of wilderness, but looking at where we live, where it can play, the areas around cities and suburbs, and rural areas as well, as places to add native plants back into the landscape and take on kind of a holistic approach from a bottom-up perspective. And so the three tenets of rewilding for us are adding those native plants back into the landscape to support the local food webs, of course, but also thinking about restoring the natural processes in our landscapes and reducing the harms by 
kind of adopting more mindful practices rather than using fertilizers and pesticides and mowing and blowing constantly, allowing the vegetation to go through its natural life cycle and allow for all the different creatures that rely on the natural vegetation to remain there and not be disturbed during parts of their life cycles. The third tenet is really thinking about you can't do this in a vacuum. So joining together with your friends and family and and your community to connect the fragmented habitats that have been fragmented by our development and poor landscape practices and really think about adding back native plants in a really strategic way and community-centered way. So that's what we think of as rewilding. And so this first plea that Andrea Barry, our executive director at Wild Seed Project, made in the Native Ground Covers Guide is to really start thinking about reducing lawns and those mulch deserts and really thinking from the ground up about how you can start rewilding. Because it can be kind of an overwhelming concept if you take it in as a whole, but you can take some really kind of logistical and actionable steps to rewild your landscape. And I think ground covers are a very natural first step. So it wouldn't hurt to bring a few native ground covers over to a neighbor's or a friend's and say, hey, these look (laughs) really nice under your native cedars or your native linden tree. Oh, yeah, that would be a lovely gift. I think giving gifts is like always a way to win people over. But maybe start with one of the ground covers like wild ginger if they have some shade or bearberry if they have some sun that are a little bit more well behaved that are not going to seed around and really take up the space like a lot of the ground covers in this book because you want to kind of ease people in slowly and give them some some of the more kind of garden like plants to begin with before they really dive in head first. You've already talked about some of the roles that native ground covers play in the ecosystem. One catchphrase we've been hearing for about a year now is soft landing, Mm -hmm. providing a soft landing for insects that pupate in trees. They crawl down the bark to the base of the tree to begin their life cycle. And if they don't have those ground covers surrounding the base of the tree, they really don't have any protection. Could you touch on that for a moment? Sure. Yeah. I think ecologically ground covers play a really significant role in a kind of, if you look at like a forest like setting or ecosystem, because while the caterpillars of moths and butterflies spend a lot of their time during the growing season up in the trees foraging on leaves, there are some like the Cecropia silk moth that will weave its cocoon and pupate by hanging from one of its host plants leaves like the black cherry, but there are others like the luna moth that do drop down into the leaf litter and overwinter under the leaf litter after they've pupated. So they need that protection from the ground covers and the leaf litter that's there in order to kind of be sheltered from the elements as well as protected from predation and things like that. So yeah, that's really an important role. I think that a lot of the ground covers, we have varying heights of ground covers in this guide. Some of them are more ground huggers like wintergreen, which are really prostrate and low to the ground forming a carpet. Others might be up to a couple feet tall. So they can really provide a lot of shelter, like especially native ferns provide a lot of dense shelter for small mammals like mice and 
rabbits and other sorts of creatures. So I think that's essential to them during all parts of the season. But the ground covers are really going to provide that shelter during the growing season. And then they'll die back and their leaves will actually they can become thought of as like a green mulch as well, because as their leaves die back, they contribute more organic matter and nutrients to the soil, along with the fallen leaves from the trees. So all of that is really important for the cycling of nutrients in our system ecosystems, as well as the cycling of different creatures' life cycles. That's the other catchphrase that we all keep hearing. Plants are the mulch. So instead of having that volcano of ground mulch traveling up the trunk of the tree sitting alone in the middle of the lawn with no other plants you can actually ditch that idea and plant (laughs) ground covers around the base of the tree and create a lovely little ecosystem that benefits a lot of wildlife oh totally i mean i think yeah it's unfortunate that landscapers i see this happening everywhere on you know in parking lot islands and people's homes, landscapers that unfortunately have been misinformed and will pile up huge amounts of mulch, like you mentioned, around the base of the tree in in this Facebook group called Crimes Against Horticulture, which I absolutely love. They call that volcano mulching. And it's very unfortunate because it will kill the tree over time. It will um, rot the tree bark and then essentially girdle the tree. So it'll, you know, block the flow of nutrients up and down the tree. And mulch, you know, I think in a park-like setting, mulch around trees, that mulch ring is used mainly to keep the mowers from hitting the roots and damaging the tree roots. But mulch is not necessary around a tree. I think you can replace it with ground covers and those ground covers are not going to compete with the tree for nutrients and water. They're actually going to help contribute to this greater system. Instead of mowing grass around the tree or keeping that mulch ring out so that the mowers don't get to the grass, you can have ground covers and just eliminate all that work in general. And especially since Asian jumping worms are such a problem now in New England, they do so much damage and state officials are saying that they do come in and bag mulch. Yes. Yeah. That's another issue. Anytime you're transporting materials now, even plants full of soil, you have to be extra careful of not transporting those Asian jumping worms. Now, your guide also says that ground covers are nature's sponges. Could you talk about Mm -hmm. that a little? Yeah, they certainly can be. So I really like the idea of thinking about plants as sponges in the landscape that can really soak up and absorb and intercept rain as it falls to the ground. So ground covers are one of the steps in that process. Their leaves, you know, keeping a cover over the ground will intercept those rain droplets and really slow down the volume of water hitting the ground and preventing washout. And then their roots, of course, are thirsty and will drink that water up. Now having trees and shrubs and other plants in the landscape that are bigger as well will really increase that absorption of rainwater, but the ground covers will do a huge part of that. We actually have these different ground cover guilds that we decided to outline in the guide because we wanted to kind of give people some design ideas for how to think about pairing ground covers and using them in the landscape. And one of the guilds is called Nature Sponges, and it really focuses on the plants that are 
really water-loving species that help reduce stormwater runoff and erosion. And a lot of these species are adaptable to a wide range of different sun and soil conditions. So they might be full sun plants or handle partial shade. And they thrive in low wet spots like swales and ditches and stream banks, as well as pond margins and, and even rain gardens. So a few species that I would definitely point people to, to kind of be those sponges and those low parts of the landscape where water flows into would be blue iris and sensitive fern and heart-leafed alexanders, marsh marigold and path rush, as well as all different species of violets are also really useful in this way. That is great. Could you explain to our listeners what a guild is? Yeah, I think a guild, we wanted to use our words really carefully, thinking about the best possible word that would explain what we're trying to talk about. And so I think it was kind of interesting to use the word guild because you often hear that word when you think about permaculture, you know, thinking about different uh, groups of plants that, you know, that the permaculture thinks of the guild concept as really thinking about a group of plants that work in synchronous together that really, you know, function as a team and make a greater impact when they're all working together in conjunction. So, you know, the original guild, which was a Native American plant guild and still is employed today, is the Three Sisters. So that's looking at a guild of the corn, which provides kind of a pole, and the beans, which trellis up the pole and provide some ground cover. And then the squash, which really has broad leaves and really provides the ground cover. The beans also fix nitrogen in the soil. And all of them are productive in terms of they produce some sort of food. So the squash fruits, the squash flowers, the corn fruits, and the bean fruits as well, all are edible. Now with ground cover guilds, we're not looking at, you know, productive edible species, but we're looking at what kinds of ground covers could work well together in different habitat types. So drawing inspiration from places like Rocky Mountain Tops or wetlands, forested landscapes with deciduous trees or coniferous forests, we can really think about what kinds of species we see in their natural plant communities and how can we kind of pull them out and think about working them into the built landscape. So one example would be, there's a guild that we named between a rock and a hard place. And this is really attractive and tough plants that can withstand the really lean and sandy gravelly soils and well-drained soils that are often in our urban and suburban areas, bordering stone walls and stepping stones and patios and rock outcrops and sidewalks, roads and, and parking lots. And these also would work really well on green roofs and seaside yards too. But a lot of these are naturally found, these species are naturally found in the coastal sand plains, so they can tolerate really salty, well-drained soil or they're often found on mountaintops or growing straight out of ledge. So they're, they'd work perfectly in these kind of urban, analogous urban conditions. So some of these might be bearberry or wavy hair grass, bird's foot violet, and the guild that we illustrated was actually 
three-toothed sink foil. That's a mouthful to say. <laughs> I can say that again if you like, but black-sleeved aster and plantain-leaved pussy toes. And we were thinking also about, you know, what plants complement each other in terms of how they look as well and the time of year that they bloom so that we can have pollinator forage year-round, but also their growth habits and growth rates. So they need to, you know, grow in similar conditions and then not be planted and then have one kind of take over the rest of the group over time. So thinking about species that have moderate growth rates and habits and pairing them together, sometimes having a mix of species that grow and spread vegetatively mixed with some species that will mostly kind of move themselves around the landscape by spreading by seed can be helpful because the cedars, the species that will really self-sow prolifically in the landscape are really good, especially at establishing new plantings where there's a lot of open gaps. And so you don't have to plant quite as many plants in that space because you can really let the plants do the work. So this is especially important for a slope. I actually had a lot of experience with this when I was a horticulturist at Garden in the Woods. We had a lot of wooded slopes that were really tough to establish plants on because they were very dry, well-drained, and plants would just dry out and not make it. But I found that if we planted things like bluewood aster and wild bleeding heart and wood poppies towards the top of the slope, that they would seed themselves kind of down the slope and really fill out the slope over time. So we wouldn't have to do that heavy lifting of really trying to plant every single inch of the slope. So those are really good lessons that I think are nice to put in a guide like this so that people don't just learn about the individual plants, but they can think about how they fit into a landscape setting. Now that first group or guild that you talked about, you know, between a rock and a hard place That sounds ideal for, uh, say, if you have a a stone patio or you have a stone wall, because those rocks and bricks, they do absorb heat and it makes it extra hot in that area. Or if you have stepping stones along a, a walkway or a path through your garden. So these plants that you mentioned, like the, uh, creeping juniper and moss flocks, they're extra tough and hardy, but they're still very pretty. Oh, yeah. Um, I actually sometimes think that the plants in this group might be some of the most beautiful. A lot of plants that are adapted to droughty conditions have things like either fuzzy leaves, like the plantain leaf pussy toes, because it kind of helps keeps them, their leaves from losing water. Oftentimes also they'll have like sharp needle-like leaves, just the modification of leaves to adapt to drought stress and, and heat has a variety of different manifestations and it can be really beautiful. So a lot of these plants like the Three tooth sink foils have glossy leaves, same with the bearberry. And I think that's a, an adaptation to keep them from losing too much moisture as well. So, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of gardeners struggle with those areas because they are so hot and so dry. We're gardeners. We all like to fill bare spots with plants. <laughs> so <laughs> at least for myself personally, I find that as a spot that I'm continually trying to crack the code on what will survive there because those spots are so hot 
you almost makes you think that you want to put cactus there, but we don't really have, I think we have one or two native cactus in New England, but that, <laughs> that doesn't really fit the bill. But these plants really do fill in those spaces quite nicely. So I think it's a real problem solver. Yeah, for sure. And, and I do want to good, put in a plug for the our native prickly pear cactus, because I've actually seen it planted in a parking lot island at an REI store. And what was really cool is they had solar panels in the parking lot and it was really looking beautiful and filled out. And I actually think that kind of cactus would work really well. And that hell strip area, like the, between the sidewalk and the road, that little kind of planting strip or in a really tough kind of urban parking lot. So yeah, we have so many native species that will do really well in some of the toughest conditions. And you don't have to rely on species from elsewhere to kind of thrive in the most tough settings. That is great. That's great to know. I'm going to try that. Now, getting back to what you were just mentioning, which is the bare and naked slopes, it's just so important to be able to find plants that fit in those spaces so you don't have erosion. Yeah. So you don't lose that vital topsoil. I find, again, you know, those slopes, that's where I'm putting, if I am going to buy soil amendments, that's where I'm putting them to replace the erosion that's occurring because there are spots where I just cannot get plants to grow because it's just extra exposed. They're exposed to more downpours, more wind, more sun. But, you know, these plants that you mentioned, like the Cranesbill geranium, the large-leaved aster, the golden groundsel, the wood poppy, those are tough little plants and they hold on to the soil. They don't let go. So they really prevent erosion. Yeah, a lot of them, I think green and gold and Pennsylvania sedge will be really important on slopes for holding the soil together because they'll spread by rhizome and, and form a really nice carpet that it just makes for really stable soil. And those can be used kind of as a backdrop or a matrix for which to plant other things through that will seed into any bare spots that are open. Now, in our remaining time, would you like to talk about any uh, favorite ground covers you have in the guide? Yeah, there's so many to choose from. I don't usually get through many conversations about plants without talking about one of my favorite species, partridge pea. Not everyone would necessarily think of this as a ground cover, but I do think it is a ground cover in a sense, and I think it has a very particular niche in the landscape. So I first learned about partridge pea from Daryl Morrison, who taught actually my graduate school class at the Conway School. And he is a designer of prairies and landscapes. He's originally from the prairie in the U.S. and just grew up around it and has been designing these beautiful meadows and prairies for different botanical gardens and organizations throughout the U.S. So he often uses partridge pea as kind of a, a native cover crop that will help cover the ground and really protect the slower growing grasses and wildflowers in a meadow-like setting before they really start to generate growth and are able to kind of hold their own in the soil. And it is actually like other cover crops in the pea family, and it will fix nitrogen in the soil and kind of help 
initially drill down through the soil with its roots to kind of break up and aerate the soil a little bit and set the stage for other plants to thrive a little bit more. And in the meantime, while other plants are getting established, it can really become a magnificent pollinator magnet in its first year, really putting out tons of large yellow blossoms with red centers. And then these little things called extra floral nectaries, which lay at the base of the petiole between the petiole and the main stem. And those extra floral nectaries provide huge amounts of nectar for pollinators and insects. It's a lot of beneficial insects and they come crawling to it. First, maybe they're attracted by the flower, which actually just produces pollen, but no nectar. And then they'll stay for that nectar treat. Even ants really love this plant because they love the nectar and then they will in turn protect the plant from herbivory, from you know species like deer or other insects that might eat the leaves. And so it's really just a cornucopia of insects during the growing season and in the middle of the summer. So it's a beautiful kind of fern textured native ground cover. But as the other species kind of fill in over time, it will actually kind of peter out because it's an annual. It will seed in wherever there's open soil. But as other species kind of take up that space on the ground plane, it will sort of, you know, only start kind of coming into the edges each year and then eventually you won't find much of it at all. So I tend to see it as like kind of a one to three year planting in a new planting that kind of helps establish it. That is Um, great. That sounds like something else I'm going to try. (laughs) Yeah, black-eyed coneflower, it could be used kind of similarly. It's a short-lived perennial, so it will also seed around and kind of fill in those open niches year after year and tends to stick around as long as there's some bare spots that it can seed into. That is great. Well, Anna, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so helpful. I know it has been for me. I hope it's been helpful for my listeners. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be able to come on here again and talk about native ground covers. Yes. Now, how can people get this guide? You can visit our website and we sell them for $18.00. You can also buy them in bulk and then we you have kind of like a bulk rate. But I think the best way to get them is to become a member of Wild Seed Project because it's one of our member benefits, but also you're supporting our organization. And we've been growing over the last couple of years and providing more and more for our members and our supporters. So we really hope that you'll support us. You can also pick it up from local retailers, Like even the Maine Organic Marketplace in Freeport, Maine is carrying it now, as well as several botanical gardens in the Northeast, like Coastal Maine Botanical Garden and Garden in the Woods in Framingham, Massachusetts. That's great. Now, will you be selling any of these ground covers through Wild Seed Project? Oh, yes. We definitely sell the seeds of a lot of these ground covers. You can find them on our seed sale page on our website. And then in the fall, we actually have a native plant sale that are all plants grown from seed that we've collected. And then they're sold at the perfect time of year to plant into the ground when the temperatures are really falling and the plant's water needs are a lot less. So I encourage people to kind of come and visit our plant sale. It's in late August into September. Right. And that's a case where you have to be at the plant sale to be at the physical sale 
because there is yeah. no mail order of the plants. Exactly. That's right. a, you have to be somewhat local or be willing to drive, but you can get our seeds pretty much from anywhere. Right. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Thanks for a wonderful guide and all the fantastic work that you're doing at Wild Seed Project. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.